Welcome, everyone, to the History of Classical Performance series. Now, when we decided to explore classical performance, our objective is to focus on classical disciplines such as the opera, the ballet, the symphony, and pocket opera, which is, yes, a very quaint and powerful alternative to opera company. What is even more exciting is our guest host for this series. We are very fortunate to welcome a local celebrity, Carolyn Tyler. Now, if you grew up in the Bay Area and you do not know her name, you will absolutely recognize her voice. Carolyn Tyler was an ABC KGO news anchor and journalist for 32 years. She is now retired and is currently a film commissioner for San Francisco, which was a position appointed by the mayor. Yes, very cool. And Carolyn is a major supporter for the arts. So who better to have along with us as we explore the lives of performance artists in San Francisco? I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Okay, so my personal favorite classical performance art has to be the symphony, mostly because I always wanted to play an instrument and I never did because band bus went too early in the morning, but I'm just a huge music appreciator. And so you better believe the Davies Symphony Hall performances are totally bookmarked on my computer. Tim and I go like at least two, three, four times a year. They're my absolute favorite. (laughs) Well, I personally love the symphony because as a young kid, I played the violin. Now, it didn't last very long. So in high school, we went into chamber choir. So Mm. that's my history with the arts. So I have a huge appreciation for anything performing arts, which is what we're talking about here, but singing and symphony. That's my jams. (laughs) Well, my background, I have a BFA in theater from NYU, but we used to go to the opera all the time. And we used to go early and stand in line to get this standing room only tickets. And then in San Francisco, I've gone to the opera a few times, mostly because the San Francisco Boys Chorus would perform at the opera. And so I really fell in love with going to the opera, the glamour of it. And the champagne. (laughs) And the music. In einem Bächlein helle, da schoss in froher Eil, die launische Forelle. San Francisco has had a deep love affair with the opera. From the gold rush days of 1851 to the earthquake of 1906, Over 5,000 performances were given in 26 different theaters all across San Francisco. The San Francisco Opera was founded in 1923 by Gaetano Merola, and not long after that, he founded the Opera Chorus. 
the opera chorus is the backbone for all of opera. They support a broad range of performances all inside of the opera. Even today, it is highly competitive and very sought after. Today, we are honored to have a member of the current San Francisco Opera Chorus, Michael Bell. Michael, glad to have you join us. Can you please say your full name? Charles Michael Bell. And you were born and raised in? I was born in Washington, D.C., raised in Maryland, Greenbelt, Maryland. Wow. Tell us your position in the San Francisco Opera and then a little bit about the history of how you got there. <laughs> so I am a second tenor in the regular chorus of San Francisco Opera. I've been there since 2009. How I got there is a comedy of real good luck, let me tell you. <laughs> I actually didn't sing much after college for about 11 years. I was working as a software quality engineer, release engineer, general. Wow. Tech hire. What a yeah. departure from that. Yeah, just a slight <laughs> departure, isn't it? And I was in the process of building a computer for a friend who happened to be an opera singer. Wow. And she said, well, I can either pay you for this service or I can give you free voice lessons. And I'm like, dude, free voice lessons. I haven't sung in a decade or so. And I took those lessons. She happened to be running a company of her own called the Boston Opera Project. And I sang with them in Mark Blitstein's Regina. And I think our last performance was September 11th, 2004. And I said, why on earth did I stop singing? Hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and start singing again and see what comes of it. I didn't have in mind a professional career at all. Let me be absolutely clear on that. <laughs> or it, even if it was a professional one, it was... Simply the idea of, okay, I'll work my day job, whatever that is, and go and sing and rehearse on weekends. And that's what we do. But I kept getting better and better credits and eventually sang for Opera Providence and Tremonisha. And that credit, the guy who auditioned me for Porgy and Bess and Lyric Opera of Chicago says, that's the one that was eye-popping to me. That's why I hired you. So I got to be in the chorus of Porgy and Bess at Lyric Opera of Chicago in 2008. And from there, I auditioned for here. And instead of giving me just Porgy and Bess, they were doing the exact same production. They hired me to be in the permanent chorus. And that's where I've been ever since. So why did you think about stopping singing? Was it a financial decision years ago? It's or? always a financial decision. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a financial decision. So, I mean, all of my relatives on my mom's side and even some on my dad's side all played instruments did singing vocal composition everything some of them i think mom's eldest sister did it as a professional she was an organist in massachusetts for a while but all of them ended up moving on and so i saw that in them and i thought it was a full expectation it was something you did as a discipline because it was close to your heart and a good focus for practicing and for applying in other sections of your life. It wasn't necessarily for professional release. You know, that being said, one of my uncles brags constantly about having been able to play on the same stage as Maceo Parker. <laughs> so there you have it. But that being said, he's an orthodontist. <laughs> okay. 
So that's what my thinking was the entire time. That was my philosophy that I brought to it. I didn't realize that a professional career meant, oh, yes, you can do this permanently. This can be your main source of work exclusively, nothing else. So it was a real shocker to me when I looked at the sheet at the Lyric Opera of Chicago and said, oh, wow, I can actually make a living in that chorus. That's Too bad they don't have any openings. That's a prestigious company. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, I, yeah, I, even then I kind of wrote it off as, you know, this is an opportunity to sing at the highest level and I'm going to take it with both hands and do my very best with the expectation that it's not going to go very far. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. So here I am and happy to report that, yeah, I've been singing opera since 2004 and I've been supporting myself exclusively in this discipline since 2008. So it's hard to become a regular, we talked to someone who was in the extra chorus. Yes, my friend Harlan. Yes, Harlan, wanting to be a member, a tenured member and have a permanent position and it sounds almost like you waltzed into it. (laughs) All right, so In this discipline, as well as in all the performing arts disciplines, a lot of it is still subjective. Yes, you are expected to have a certain level of professionality. You know, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to know how to actually produce your product, singing, or if you're playing violin, a good sound that they are looking for that can blend. That being said, what is in your voice is still subjective to the person who's hiring you. Mm Mm-hmm. And also there are numbers. If no one is retiring or leaving for a year, then there's no availability. And I, all the stars happen to align. My friend Harlan is a very, very worthy voice. I've sat next to him and watched his preparation for years at a time. And I remember there was a concert we did last year where he was memorized for all but like three pieces, you know, just having the concert music in front of him. And I'm like, this is some complicated music. My God, you're making us all look bad. You know, so (laughs) understand that even beyond the general requirements of being able to read your music, sight read, prepare your music, and so on and so forth, there's still the subjective far and above and saying, okay, is your voice going to blend? And is there an opening for which I can hire you? Mm -hmm. So you went to an HBCU, historically black college and university, Clark. Mm -hmm. And were you involved in music at that time or? Sadly, no. And not to say that there wasn't the opportunity to do so, but I actually did not take it. They had a wonderful chorus director. I think they even had a musical department that dealt with voice. I'm not sure. I did not look into it. I did not take it seriously at the time. I apologize. Um, (laughs) And I remember there was a talent show of some sort of all of the students who were in my particular line of scholarship where we could show our talents and I just happened to sing. And one of them came up to me afterwards and says, well, why aren't you singing? And I'm like, well, I'm majoring in math and engineering. You know, that's what I'm doing. I don't think there's any time to do anything else, is there? And what are my future prospects? And I left them with that. So I didn't have the right attitude at the time to apply it. I have overlooked many opportunities (laughs) to understate the obvious. There was a time when my chorus master back in high school wanted to get me 
to audition for some tenor, mind you, that tenor was George Shirley, at mm. University of Michigan. Wow. And I had no idea who George Shirley was, and I turned him right down. Wow. My ego-driven <laughs> stupidity, I suppose. You know. that, that happens, though. It takes a lot of different hurdles to finally come into your own. It took some time to realize that, okay, as much as I put down the opportunity to sing professionally, this is something that I truly love and enjoy. It gives me a lot of comfort. It took some time to figure out that, oh, this actually is a balm to my soul for all the other things I'm doing in my life. And once I realized that, I was happy to embrace it again. But even then, the idea of it being a discipline that, you know, supplied the majority of my income was still kind of foreign. I was just going to do it and I was going to enjoy it, which is enough. It is enough. And it would have been enough. I'm thankful it wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about a typical day? Typical day when we are not actually performing on the stage. We are rehearsing for three hours in the afternoon and usually three hours at night, either musical rehearsal or staging. And performance nights, the performances go as long as they need to go. Every opera isn't the exact same length, so some of them are less than two hours. Some of them are over five hours. Yes. Wow. I understand that San Francisco has one of the best opera companies in the country. In the world. In the world. Oh, yes, the world. <laughs> Let's wear that coat, shall we? <laughs> so what's it like to be on stage at one of the best opera companies in the world? It is one of the deepest experiences I get, and I get it on a regular basis. It's such a blessing to be able to be on that stage and just tell the story with the talents I have within me. And, you know, so there's acting, there's dancing, there's singing, all of that. And applying the discipline off the stage to get there. It's a lengthy process because there's a lot of components. Opera, by definition, means all the works. It's not just the singing. Obviously, there's an orchestra. And then there's the giant bunch of people in black shirts supporting us all around. There's the makeup artists, all of that. Then there's art in the form of the art droppings that you will see coming down from the tops of the stage, the set pieces, all of this. It's a huge process. And it takes months. And you're doing it for only, what, seven, as many as maybe 13 performances? for that one opera, and then you are cleaning up the entire act, getting it off the stage, and moving on to the next show. Wow. And learning languages along the way. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Many different languages. As a matter of fact, we just did my first opera ever in Russian. I had never done any Russian before. <laughs> Italian, yes, we've done that dozens, if not hundreds of times. Plenty of German, Latin, French, all of the Romance languages. <laughs> And so, and ironically, I hadn't done any Russian, but I had done three operas in Czech. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So how difficult is that to get the accent just right and to learn those languages for the pieces that you're doing? All right. This is the arbitrary part. You know, this is exclusive <laughs> my, my opinion. It differs by the language. 
Some languages are hard for people. Some languages are easy for people. Some of my colleagues have disciplines exclusively studying a certain language. We have a couple of Russian specialists in the chorus. One of them was used, in fact, to help us for our diction. Certain languages come easy to me. Others came through much effort. (laughs) (laughs) Italian came pretty easily. German came very easily. Hmm. French hurt. <laughs> French took a while, but now I, I, I can say I'm actually pretty comfortable with it. That's excellent, because French is not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the language that I know best. Okay. Really? Mm-hmm. Not much, but... Uh, Speaking it and singing it are two completely different, different things. Different things, sure. Yeah. Because, yeah, you, in order to... It, spoken French can do as French does and exclude a lot of the consonants. But when you're singing, that isn't as clear. And so some of the consonants need to be accented and others need to be left behind. And uh-huh. so you have to make a decision. And sometimes those decisions depend on what section of France, what history period of France in this opera deals with. So it differs a lot. Wow. I'd like a sample. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Enfermant les yeux, je vois là-bas Un homme le retraite That was from Manon. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank Beautiful, you. thank you. Wow. I don't know if that's the right pitch, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get interested in singing opera in the first place? There's so many other different kinds of music. Why oh, opera? Yeah. Well, I sang and mom took piano and I think she took voice some time ago, way back in high school and such. And it, Everybody, like I said, in my family found it as a good discipline to have. Not necessarily one to work in, but definitely to have as a general part of your education and training. And perhaps mom saw this earlier than I did, because I remember in high school very clearly she told me, you know, if I ever won the lottery, I just put you to school for opera. And I didn't know what to do with that saying and I'm like well okay whatever you say mom thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) it was very respectfully she liked my voice she was very happy with it and so she wanted to see it go into a more serious discipline of singing and how many african-americans are there in the discipline not many it is climbing I was not at all the first African-American in the chorus. There were several already here when I got here. I think two of those now remain. And now there's a new bass baritone who's in, who's wonderful. And I think he's possibly the youngest in the chorus at this time. But among the soloists who travel around to all the opera companies in the world, there weren't that many for the longest time, except they did most of their careers in Europe. And now, just now, let's say in the last five to eight years, there have been a good number of really good voices who've come and joined us <laughs> in lead roles, and it's wonderful to experience. Do you think that's part of an effort, a conscious effort to diversify? It is an absolute effort to diversify. For the longest time, it didn't really happen in the U.S. for especially black male leads, because it produced an image that just was not racially appealing, especially to the audiences here, you know, that were traditionally formed from the upper crust, let's just say. But now, 
especially after 2020 happened, there was a very concerted effort to make diversity, equity, and inclusion a major working in every contract of all the signatories of the union, which I haven't talked to you about unto this point, American Guild of Musical Artists that encompasses opera singers, stage directors, stage management, ballet dancers, pretty much the whole gamut of the profession. Mm -hmm. And they have a number of signatories all around the U.S. And they are trying to work it into every single contract. The opportunity for not just African-Americans, mind you, but also all diverse backgrounds to be more involved. And this is pretty recent as of 2020. Oh, yes. Because prior to that, it's been very... White. Yeah. Elitist. Yeah. Very. I mean, I will give San Francisco Opera some major kudos because we hired some incredible black voices that weren't just from Porgy and Bess. Are you familiar with the details of Porgy and Bess? I think so. So just to explain for the purpose of the podcast. That's perfect. The writers, the Gershwins, specifically wrote in their will this opera has to be performed with black voices and black staffing all around the opera. So that is how they do it. They wrote that into the rights. You had to get that to get the rights of the opera. Oh, I I did did not know. Yeah, me either. That's amazing. Yes. And it has, you know, anybody who performs it has to abide by those rules. Mm. And although it was a wonderful step up for all African-American classical performers. There was a stigma involved because everybody felt, well, they're only going to hire me for Porgy. They're not going to hire me for anything else. Mm. Or maybe Tremonisha, which was Scott Joplin's opera from, oh God, what was that? 19, I'm not going to even remember. I'm sorry. (laughs) When it was actually originally written and performed, but it was his second opera. Anyway, after having done that in 2009, I noticed a huge increase in the number of black voices they'd hire. They hired them for Don Giovanni. They hired them for a Donizetti opera. I can't even remember the name of it. <laughs> but there are several voices that we love to have here that the management of San Francisco Opera loves to hire here, and we see them regularly. Do you feel any extra pressure because people are looking at you as representation? Pressure in a good way, mostly. Up until the fall of this year, I was also working through the Guild of San Francisco Opera doing outreach for them. And that means we take an opera from the regular repertoire, usually a comic opera, because all the others have rather adult topics and often (laughs) those aren't good for children. So, you know, so mostly comic. And we take them to the schools and we condense them down to only about 45 minutes long translate them entirely to English, and give the kids at a given school roles, spoken roles, while we sing around them. And this is a wonderful program that I have done since 2009. Beautiful. And people got to watch and see me cavort on stage as a romantic lead, you know, and so that representation absolutely matters. Absolutely. If you can see it, you can be it. That's That's right. right. That's exactly right. So as a member of the chorus, do you 
want to break out and be a soloist or is that, I know you're married, I believe, and have a child and maybe that's a lot of traveling and being away, but is that something that you aspire to? Divorced and still a dad, yes. I have a lovely (laughs) nine-year-old. I have a lovely nine-year-old and I do like to spend time with her and so that does actually weigh in to the equation. I like to, you know, I mean, this is... Well, every moment is the special moment in her life. But specifically, she does complain about the scheduling because it consumes my afternoons and evenings. She's just about to get to the age where I think, uh, and I discussed this with her mother, that we will be able to just stick her in the audience and let her hang out while I'm performing. And then I can take her home and (laughs) be with her the rest of the day. So I'll get more time. But still, you know, is that enough? (laughs) This is essentially a second shift job. So being a soloist is not something that would fit into your schedule? Not at this level. Not at A-level houses that have million-dollar budgets, no. Locally, with different companies, because there are dozens of smaller opera companies all over the place. And I've worked with them in the past in the off-season because the opera only shares the stage with the San Francisco Ballet seasonally. So ballet is on when we're off and vice versa. And during the off-season, I will perform with whatever small company I can. I'll be able to take Stephanie, my daughter, to the rehearsals. She hangs out there, and then I can take her to the performances as well. Can't do that as well with the current COVID protocols at the Opera House, but... I think she'll be of the age soon enough where I can do that. What do you do to keep your voice in shape during the off-season and also during the season? Voice lessons every single week, as often as I can manage. So I will cancel maybe one out of every eight weeks. (laughs) That's about my cancel rate when I'm just too busy to do one. But otherwise, it is a weekly thing. I go to... A teacher, his name is Antonio Nagore. He lives up in Antioch, and he had a professional career of his own up until about, not quite 10 years ago, traveling around Europe, around the world. You know, I remember he's given me stories about being in Australia, in Israel, in France, all over the place, everywhere. And he's happy to share all of his wisdom about the business with me, in addition to making sure that... I'm doing everything correctly and healthily and not hurting my voice because that is an easy thing to do. I'm wondering, are you silent when you're not singing? Do you try to, I'm thinking about hand models, how they always have to wear gloves and have cream and those sorts of things to keep their <laughs> their hands in shape. And Harlan was telling us how he does a tea uh, mm-hmm. to try to help. I brew tea by the gallon. Absolutely by the gallon every two to three days, and we'll consume it regularly. In terms of taking care of it, you learn not to yell in a way that is unhealthy because you've learned how to produce sound in such a way that it doesn't consume your voice much over the time of the day. And you do talk less. You understand that if you don't require verbal communication, you don't necessarily offer it. But I'm one of the more talkative people, so I don't necessarily <laughs> that. Plus, I have a nine-year-old, for God's sakes. Yeah. She's constantly, 
engaging me, asking me questions. So, you know, I, I, I have to answer her. Yeah, you have to talk. <laughs> you have to talk to my daughter. But it doesn't mean you have to go to a football game and scream. Correct. <laughs> Absolutely correct. There you go. The silent sports fan. I'm a big <laughs> Giants fan. And so I will go to games. I went to a bunch of games last season. And yeah, I don't participate in the yelling. Yeah, you can just do the wave silently. There you go. <laughs> there it is. Who are some of your favorite composers? And what are some of your favorite roles that you've had the opportunity to be in? To wow. Okay. I've liked, I've enjoyed so many things from so many different composers. I can't tell you that I have one particular favorite but Rossini has had a lot of different roles not just comic Rossini also did some serious operas back in his day and I had the joy of performing some of those the villains in those in two of them in concert I think one was oh gosh you're putting me on the spot (laughs) Elisabetta Elisabetta is the opera from which you've actually heard music. Everybody's heard the opening to The Barber of Seville. Well, Rossini ripped himself off and borrowed that overture from Elisabetta. (laughs) And so you've heard the music from it. And another one called Zelmira. They had strong female leads and villains who happened to be voiced by tenors. (laughs) Also, let's see, I've done... Offenbach, that's Hoffmann. I'd love to do Hoffmann again. Very tough role in French. Manon, the character de Griu in Manon. I'd love to do that. That is by Massonet. Plenty of Donizetti, Donizetti has done so many operas, I can't even name a third of them. And there are many roles for tenors throughout there. Why did you choose here as opposed to Chicago or any of the other cities with large, prestigious companies so i put up my sales and wherever the wind blew is where i was going to go you don't necessarily get an opportunity like i said hiring in this business is a subjective thing hopefully you have what they're looking for and when you get an opportunity generally you're going to take it unless it's singing a role that isn't necessarily good for you or something along that line so i only had the opportunity to do porgy and bess initially in chicago On the first day of Chicago rehearsals, though, we were told we could audition for the performance here. And I auditioned here, didn't expect to get anything, and instead they gave me full chorus here. Yeah. So that meant I would be living here, and I said, oh, sure, I'm going to do that. Yes. (laughs) You bet. So the regular chorus has a salary and health benefits and the whole nine. Oh, yes, it does. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. (laughs) And it's very competitive to get into. Yeah, it is. It is. I was hired by the previous chorus master. His name is Ian Robertson. And yeah, he was there for 35 years. Yes. Wonderful guy. (laughs) My first experience auditioning for him was back in Chicago. I sang one aria, just one, from Porgy and Bess called There's a Boat That's Leaving Soon for New York, the one that Sporting Life sings. I sang it, and he immediately said with this big old smile, thank you. <laughs> now, I'm a big fan of effusive praise. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you can tell that my sense of realism, I did not believe a word this man was saying. So, you know, I thought he said, thank you. I hope I never hear from you again. 
I honestly thought, you know. And so <laughs> it, it wasn't a depressing thing. It's just tamping my expectations down, doing my best, but still tamping down my yes. expectations, sure. understanding that this is a subjective art form. It's not somebody looking at your resume and saying, okay, yeah, you can put together a server <laughs> like right. in my previous line of work, and so I'm going to hire you. We're done. And so I was very happily surprised when I got offered the full-time job. I called my mom immediately and said, oh, my God, wow, I think I'm going to do this. Yeah, that's incredible, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I was wondering what your family had to say. They must be awfully proud. They are very proud. As a matter of fact, one of my cousins organized an entire trip of a huge amount of the family to come and see me in Chicago. Wow. Not just once, but twice, because I went back for, what is the name of it? Showboat. They did Showboat back at the Lyric Opera of Chicago in 2012. I went back there in the off-season to do that, and they came out both times. And I also did Porgy and Bess in Washington, D.C. at Washington National Opera. And that very same cousin organized the whole family to come and see me there. So, yeah, absolutely. They were very proud and... uh, (laughs) The downside, if you want to call it that, is I'm expected to sing at all the funerals. Oh. <laughs> and hopefully the weddings. And hopefully the, the weddings, weddings. Yes. Haven't yes. been Well, most of them have already buried a long time ago, so I don't get the opportunity much anymore, at least amongst my cousins. My cousins are all my age, you know, and I'm 50 years old. So they're all, <laughs> they've all settled into their positions of being married or single, one or the other, so I don't get to sing for them. But the older generation, they're all like, Mike, will you sing at my funeral? And I'm like... Oh Can my. I cry at your funeral, please? Oh. <laughs> I just want to cry. You know? That's hard. It is hard. It is hard. But the expectation is there. And just to show them how much I appreciated them for the life that they had, for the influence that they had in my life, absolutely I sing. Absolutely I sing at the funerals. Do you do anything with software on the side anymore? Or that's totally out of the question now? I still, every once in a while, will dabble with a little bit of programming. I learned the language Pascal in college, and from there expanded to C, which was the language for just about everything until about 20 years ago. (laughs) Um, And every once in a while, I will still look at designing a web page or something as a small hobby here or there. Or if I have to organize my life professionally, I can work spreadsheets and, (laughs) and do all that sort of thing. I did do a bit of consulting for one of my colleagues working his security cameras, I still had just enough expertise to do that. So, yeah, I I do it on and off whenever called for, and I do try and keep the skills warm, at least. And how are you liking living in San Francisco? I am living currently in Alameda. Mm. Yeah, right over in Alameda. I love San Francisco. I mean, this is one of the most picturesque cities on Earth, in my opinion, I would happily enjoy the opportunity to live in San Francisco. I love Alameda too, though. It's just just wonderful. Alameda's cute. Yeah. I rented in San Francisco for not quite a year in 2010. And I was right in Knob Hill, I think between Leavenworth and Sutter. And I loved it. It was torture because I was very close to Chinatown. So all the bakeries there, you know. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. But I was in my best shape because I could walk to and from the opera house. Didn't have to do any driving at all. I could just leave my car parked. That's perfect. That's so much better. Oh, it was wonderful. I was in my best shape. That's not coming back. (laughs) (laughs) You look pretty good. (laughs) Thank you.
We always like to conclude our interview with a similar question, which is, what would you tell a young singer? What would be your advice in terms of singing with the opera? Keep singing. Keep playing an instrument. Keep learning music. You know, keep the discipline. Don't drop it under any circumstances because it is going to help you even if your discipline ends up not being music. And if the stars align, hey, you know, you can have a career doing this and it's not just singing. You can also teach. You can sing. There's so many dozens of choirs all over the place that you can sing in. You can sing in church choir. I sing in two churches right now, in addition to working at the opera house. So this is a discipline that is going to stay with you until you can't breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. It will serve you well. Don't drop it. Very, very good advice. Thank you so much for being our guest on Beyond the Fog Radio. And we want to thank Carolyn for being our guest host. You're welcome. It's been yeah. so much fun. Thank you. This yeah. is great. Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's great to talk to each and every one of you. Awesome. Thank we appreciate you. it. This interview was so fun because it was like being in backstage of the opera, you know, learning all the things that happen behind the scenes and learning how hard it is to get into the opera chorus. And it was really a little bit sad to hear that diversity in the opera didn't really become super active until 2019. That was only three years ago. So at least it's happening and things are moving along. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Susan said, Michaela, that we're going to be having this interview at the Opera House in the green room. So I was like, oh, great, the green room. If it was anything like high school, it's like backstage or something. But it was none of that. It was upstairs in this beautiful, glamorous room that happened to be green. It's on the second floor with this balcony that overlooked City Hall, I believe. Yes, City Hall. Gorgeous. And I could just imagine an intimate setting where a few people from the opera would be performing. It would have been wonderful to watch back in the day. And talking to Michael Bell... He's so eloquent, and, you know, it's really cool just to meet other singers. Because I love singing, but, you know, I don't sing anymore, so. Why don't you bust something out, Jay? Uh, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we still want people to listen next week. Oh, uh, fair. <laughs> fair. Oh, I'm so sad that I wasn't there. I absolutely know that green room, actually. I photographed an event there, and it is so beautiful. Like, when you think of green room, you think of that big, bright lime orange, but this is like mint and for lack of a better word, elegant mm. and such a beautiful place to see opera. I didn't even realize that you could see opera there. I didn't know that that was the original use for that room. What a cool place to have an interview. I'm so sad that I missed it. And listening to Michael, he is really a fantastic storyteller. I really loved hearing what he did what his journey was to become an opera singer. I thought it was so cool that he was a tech dude and he was building a computer <laughs> and for trade, he got voice lessons and he's like, Oh yeah, I sing. And then turns out like, Oh, I really can sing. <laughs> it was a true artist journey that I totally resonate with being one myself that I tried to, you know, have a nine to five job for so many years. And then someone's like, Hey, remember this thing that you love and you're passionate about? You should do it. So 
I am so happy for him. And I really am excited to hear more people who are in this artistic San Francisco performance realm. (sighs) So who do we get to talk to next week, Jay? Well, Michaela, speaking of moving from nine to five into your passion, next week we talk with professional movers, dancers of the ballet. We speak with the principal dancer, Max Cawthorn, and Luca Farah of the Ballet Corps. And we have an additional guest host. Her name is Annette Ribeiro, and she'll be joining us as well. You can listen to that new episode and all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. We release a new episode every single Wednesday. Please subscribe so we can keep bringing you all of these amazing interviews with all of these fantastic people. And then you can see all of these fantastic people on our Instagram and Facebook. You can follow us at Beyond the Fog Radio. That's right. And until next week, thank you. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye now. Beyond the Fog Radio is created by us, Connor Chang, Tim Johnson, Tim O'Shea, and Arliss Hayes. And a big thank you again to our co-host, Carolyn Tyler. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.